0: Chapter Twenty One of The Glory of Clementina Wing by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 21. July brought in Halcyon days for everybody. There were Halcyon days for Clementina. There were neglected portraits to complete, new sitters for whom to squeeze in appointments, a host of stimulating things, not the least of which was the beloved atmosphere, half turpentine, half poetry, of the studio. Only the painter can know the delight of the mere feel of the long-forsaken brush, and the sight of the blobs of colour oozing out from the tubes onto the palette. Most of us, returning to toil after holiday, sigh over departed joys. To the painter, the joy of getting back to his easel is worth all the joys that have departed. Clementina plunged into work as a long-stranded duck plunges into water. By rising at dawn, a practice contrary to her habit, she managed to keep pace with her work, and to attend to the various affairs which her new responsibilities entailed. Her days were filled to overflowing, and filled with extraordinary happiness. A nurse was engaged for Sheila, a kind and buxom widow, who also found herself living in halcyon days. She could do practically whatever she liked, as her charge was seldom in her company. The child had her being in the studio, playing happily and quietly in a corner, thus realising Clementina's dream, or watching her paint with great wondering eyes. The process fascinated her. She would sit for an hour at a time, good as gold, absorbed in the magic of the brush strokes, clasping the dingy pinky tight against her bosom. Tommy appeared one day with a box of paints, a miniature easel, and a great mass of uncoloured fashion-plates of beautiful ladies in gorgeous raiment. A lesson or two inspired Sheila with artistic zeal so that often a sitter would come upon the two of them, painting breathlessly, Clementina screwing up her eyes, darting backwards and forwards to her canvas, and the dainty child seated on a milking-stool, and earnestly making animated rainbows of the beautiful ladies in the fashion-plates. Then there was the tedious process of obtaining probate of Hammersley's will. Luckily he had wound up all his affairs in Shanghai, to the common satisfaction of himself and his London house so that no complications arose from the latter quarter. Indeed, the firm gave the executors its cordial assistance. But the London House had to be interviewed, and lawyers had to be interviewed, and Quicksters and all kinds of other people, and papers had to be read and signed and affidavits to be made, and head-splitting intricacies of business and investments to be mastered. All this ate up many of the sunny hours. Tommy and Etta had halcyon days of their own, which, but by the free use of curmudgeonly roughness, would have merged into Clementina's. Etta had cajoled an infuriated admiral, raving round the room after a horsewhip, into a stern parent who consented to receive Tommy, explicitly reserving to himself the right to throw him out of the window should the young man not to take his fancy. Tommy called and was allowed to depart peacefully by the front door. Then Quixus, incited thereto by Tommy, called upon the admiral with the awful solemnity of a father in a french play with the result that tommy was invited to dinner at the admiral's and given as much excellent old port as he could stand after which the admiral called on clementina whom he had not met before during the throes of horsewhip hunting he had threatened to visit her there and then and give her a piece of his mind which at that moment was more like a hunk of molten lava than anything else but the arts and wiles of etta had prevailed so that the above-scheduled sequence of events had been observed. Clementina, caught in the middle of a hot afternoon's painting, received him, bedaubed and bedraggled, in the studio, whose chaos happened to be that day more than usually confounded. The admiral, accustomed to the point device females of his world, and making the spick and span of the quarter-deck a matter of common morality in material surroundings, went from Romney Place an obfuscated man. "'I can't make your friend out,' he said to Etta. I don't mind telling you that if I had seen her, I should never have allowed you to visit her. I found her looking more like a professional rabbit-skinner than a lady. When I went to sit down, I had to clear away a horrid plate of half-finished cold pie by George from the chair. She contradicted me flatly in everything I said about you, as if I didn't know my own child, and filled me up with advice." "'And wasn't it good, dear?' "'No advice is ever good. Like Nebuchadnezzar's food, it may be wholesome, but it isn't good. And then she turned round and talked the most downright common sense about women I've ever heard a woman utter. And then, by jove, I don't know how it happened. I, I never talk shop, you know. Of course you don't, dear, never, said Etta. Of course I don't. But somehow we got on to the subject, and she showed a more intelligent appreciation of the state of naval affairs than any man I've met for a long time. And as for those superficial theoretical donkeys of the club, and what else, darling? said Etta who had often heard about the donkeys, but now was dying to hear about Clementina. "'Do tell me what she talked about. She must have talked about me, didn't she?' "'About you. I've told you.' He took her chin in his hand. She was sitting on a footstool, her arms about his knee. "'You can't have told me everything, dear.' "'I think,' she informed me, "'that her selection of a husband for you was a damn sight better than mine. I beg your pardon, my dear, I didn't say damned. And then the little girl you've always talking of came in.' "'and the rabbit-skinner seemed to turn into an ordinary sort of woman, "'took me up, and in a way threw me down on the floor to play with the child. "'What did you play at, Dad? "'When I was little you used to pretend to swallow a fork. "'Did you swallow a fork?' "'The arm features relaxed into a smile. "'I did, my dear, and it was the cold pie-fork wiped on a bit of newspaper. "'And last of all, what do you think she said?' "'No one on earth could guess, dear, what Clementina might have said.' She actually asked me to sit for a crayon sketch, said my face was interesting to her as an artist, and she would like to make a study of it for her own pleasure. Now what pleasure could anybody on earth find in looking at my ugly old mug?' "'But, dear, you have a most beautiful mug,' cried Etta. "'I don't mean beautiful like the photographs of popular actors, but full of strength and character, just the fine face that appeals to the artist.' "'Do you think so?' asked the Admiral. "'I'm sure.' She ran to a little table and brought a Florentine mirror. "'Look!' He looked. Instinctively, the man of sixty-five touched the finely curved, grizzled hair about his temples. "'You're a silly child,' said he. She kissed him. "'Now confess, you have the goodness of good times with Clementina this afternoon?' "'I don't mind owning,' said the Admiral, "'that I find her a most intelligent woman.' And "'That is the way that all of us sons of Adam, even admirals of the British fleet, can be beguiled by the daughters of Eve. Halcyon days were they for Quixtus, for whom London wore an entirely different aspect from the Akeldama he had left. Instead of its streets and squares stretching out before him as a scene of potential devilry, it smiled upon him as the centre of manifold pleasant interests. He had the great work to attack, the final picture that mortal knowledge could draw of that far-off haunting phase of human life before the startling use of iron was known to mankind. It was not to be a dull catalogue of dead things. The dead things, a million facts, were to be the skeleton on which he would build his great vivid flesh-and-blood story, the dream of his life which only now did he feel the vital impulse to realise. He had his club and his cronies, harmless folk, beneath whose mild exterior he no longer divined horrible corruption. From them all he received congratulations on his altered mien. The change had done him good. He was looking ten years younger. Some chafed him after the way of men. Wonderful place, Paris! He found a stimulating interest in his new responsibilities. Vestiges of his perfunctory legal training remained, and enabled him to unravel simple complications in the Hammersley affairs, much to Clementine's admiration and his own satisfaction. He discovered a pleasure once more in the occasional society of Tommy, and concerned himself seriously with his love-making and his painting he spoke of him to Dawkins, the rich donor of the Anthropological Society portrait to whom Tommy had alluded with such disrespect to Clementina. Dawkins visited Tommy's studio and walked away with a couple of pictures, after having paid such a price as to make the young man regard him as a fairy godfather in vast white waistcoat and baggy trousers. Quixus also entertained Tommy and Etta at lunch at the Carlton, Mrs. Fontaine completing the quartet. "'I should have liked it better,' said Clementina, when she heard of the incident, and she heard all that happened to the lovers. "'I should have liked it better if it hadn't brought Mrs. Fontaine into it.' Whereat Tommy winked at Etta, unbeknown to Clementina. Quixus's friendship with the spotless flower of womanhood continued. He had tea with her in her prettily furnished little house in Pont Street, where he met several of her acquaintances, people of unquestionable position in the London world. And attended one or two receptions, and even a dance at which he was present. Very skillfully she drew him into her circle, and adroitly played him in public as a serious aspirant to her spotless hand. There were many who called him the variegated synonyms of a fool, for to hard-bitten worldlings few illusions are left concerning a woman like Lena Fontaine, but they shrugged their shoulders cynically and viewed the capture with amused interest. Only the most jaded complained. If she wanted to give them a sensation why did she not go a step further and lead about a bishop on her string but these uncharitable remarks did not reach Quixtus's ears the word went round that he was a man of distinguished scientific position whether he was a metallurgist or a brain specialist no one at the tired end of the london season either knew or cared to know and his courtly and scholarly demeanour confirming the rumour the corner of vanity fair in which lena fontaine fought to hold her position paid him considerable deference. The flattery of the frivolous pleased him, as it had pleased many a good simple man before him. He thought Mrs. Fontaine's friends very charming, though perhaps not over-intellectual people. He went among them, however, scarce knowing why. A card of invitation would come by post from Lady Anything, whom he had once met. Before he had time to obey his first impulse and decline, Lena Fontaine's voice would be heard over the telephone, Are you going to lady anything's on friday i don't think so she has asked you i know i'm going oh do come lady anything tells me she's got some interesting people to meet you and i shall be so miserable if you're not there who is he to cause misery to the spotless lady the victim yielded and blandly unconscious of feminine guile was paraded before the interesting people as the latest and most lasting conquest of Lena Fontaine's bow and spear. August plans were discussed. She was thinking of Dinar. What was Quixters proposing to do? He had not considered the question, had contemplated work in London. She held up her hands. London in August? How could he exist in the stuffy place? He needed a real holiday. To tell you the truth, I don't know where to go, said he. Very delicately she suggested Dina. He objected in his shy way. Dina was the haunt of fashion and frivolity. "'I should walk about the place like a door among peacocks,' said he. "'But why should you be a door? Why not do a little peacocking? Colour in life would be good for you, and I would undertake to keep your feathers trim.' He smiled, half allured, half repelled by the idea of strutting among such gay birds. To refuse the spotless lady's request downright, an act of discourtesy of which he was incapable. He gave a vague and qualified assent to the proposal, which she did not then tempt him to make more definite. Content with her progress, she bided her time. Quixus had little leisure to reflect on the sceptical attitude towards humanity which, theoretically, he still maintained. In addition to all these hour-absorbing interests, Sheila began to occupy a considerable place in his life. Sometimes he would call at Romney Place. Sometimes Clementina would bring the child to Russell Square. Sometimes, when Clementina was too busy, Sheila came in the nurse's charge. He cleared out a large room at the top of the house, which was to be Sheila's nursery, when she took up her quarters there. It needed repapering, re-carpeting, refurnishing, he decided. Nothing like cheerful surroundings for impressionable childhood. With this in view, he carried off Sheila one day to a firm of wallpaper-dealers, so that she could choose a pattern for herself. Sheila sat solemnly on the sofa by his side, while the polite assistant turned over great strips of paper. At last she decided. A bewildering number of parrots to the square yard, all with red bodies and blue tails, darting about among green foliage on which pink roses grew miraculously, was the chosen design. Quicksters hesitated, but Sheila was firm. They proudly took home a strip to try against the wall. Clementina, hearing from Sheila of her exploit, rushed up the next afternoon to Russell Square and blinked her eyes before the dazzling thing. "'It's only you, Ephraim, that could have taken a child of five to select wallpapers.' "'I will owe that the result is disastrous,' he said briefly. "'But she set her heart upon it.' She sighed. Your two babies together. I see I've got to fix up that, that nursery myself.' She looked at him with a woman's delicious pity. What could a lone man know of the fitting up of nurseries? "'You hear what your auntie says?' he asked. The child was sitting on his knee. "'We're in disgrace.' "'If you're in disgrace, you go in the corner,' said Sheila. "'Let us go in the corner, then.' "'If you hold me very tight,' said Sheila. But Clementina came up and forgave them, and kissed the little face peeping over Quixus's shoulder. "'Does my heart good to see you with her?' she cried, with rare demonstrativeness. "'It was true. Sheila's sweet ways with Tommy and Etta caused her ever so little a pang of jealousy. Her increasing fondness for Quickstis made Clementina thrill with pleasure. You may say that Clementina, essentially just, was scrupulous not to encroach upon Quickstis's legal half-share in the child's esteem, but a sense of justice is not an emotion. And it was emotion—' Silly, feminine, romantic emotion, which she did not try to explain to herself, that filled her eyes with moisture whenever she saw the two happy together. She laid her hand upon the fair hair. "'Do you love your uncle, Epham?" "'I adore him,' said Sheila. "'Your uncle fully reciprocates the sentiment, my dear,' said Quicksters, his hand also instinctively rising to caress the hair. So the hands of the guardians touched. Clementina withdrew hers and turned away quickly, so that he should not see the flush that sprang into her face. We must be going home now, dear, she said. Auntie is wasting precious daylight. And with her old abruptness she left him. He followed her down the stairs. My dear Clementina, said he, standing bareheaded at his front door, I wonder whether you realize how Sheila and yourself. Light up this dull old house for me. She sniffed scornfully. I light up. You, said he, with smiling emphasis. She looked at him queerly for an instant, and then went her way. The next time he saw her, a few days afterwards, one late afternoon, when she was tired after a heavy day's painting, she railed at him with a return of her old biting manner. He looked surprised and pained. She relented. "'Forgive me, my good Ephraim,' she said, "'but I've the rough luck to be a woman. No man alive can ever conjecture what a devil of a thing that is to be.' He smiled. "'You mustn't overwork,' said he. "'A woman hasn't the brute strength of a man.' "'You're delicious,' she said. But she was kind—exceedingly kind—to him thereafter, and fitted up the nursery in a way that made the two babies beam with delight.' So Quixtus lived Halcyon days. In spite of qualms of conscience, these were Halcyon days for Huckabee. He had already entered on his duties as Quixtus's assistants in the preparation of the monumental work on The Household Arts of the Neolithic Age. There were hundreds of marked passages in books to transcribe with accurate notes of reference, hundreds of learned periodicals in all languages with articles bearing on the subject to be condensed and indexed thousands of notes of Quixus's to be collated, thousands of photographs and drawings to be classified. Never having been admitted into the inner factory of his patron's work, he was astonished at the enormous amount of material, the evidence of the unsuspected patient labour of years. He began to feel a new respect for Quixtus, whom hitherto he had regarded as a dilettante. Of course, he knew that Quixus had a European reputation. He had not taken the reputation seriously. Like Clementina, he'd been wont to scoff at prehistoric man. Now he realised for the first time that a man cannot gain a European reputation in any branch of human activity without paying the price in toil, that there are qualities of energy, brain, and will inherent in any man who takes front rank, that there must be a calm, infinite thoroughness in his work which is beyond the power of the smaller man. No wonder his French colleagues called Quixote's Cher maitre, and deferred to his judgment. In his workroom, Quixtus was a great man, and Huckabee, seeing him now in his workroom, recognised the fact. The prospects of his appointment as secretary to the Anthropological Society were also fair. Hitherto, the responsibilities of that position had been borne by one of the members in an honorary capacity, a paid and unimportant underling performing the clerical duties but for the last year or so, the operations of the society having extended, the secretaryship had become too great a tax on the time of any unpaid and no matter how enthusiastic gentleman. The Council, therefore, had practically determined on the appointment of a salaried secretary, and were much impressed by the qualifications of the President's nominee. A secretary who can print below his name on official papers the fact that he is a Master of Arts and late fellow of his college lends distinction to any learned society." A snuffy, seedy, and crotchety member had been put forward as an opposition candidate, but his chances were small. Huckabee's star was in the ascendant. It was a happy day for him when he moved his books and few other belongings from the evil garret where he had lived to modest but cheerful lodgings near Russell Square. He looked for the last time around the room which had been the scene of so many degradations, of so many despairs, of so many torturings of soul. All that was a part of his past life—the greasy wallpaper, the rickety deal furniture, the filth-sodden ragged carpet, the slimy soot on the window-sill that had crept in from the circumambient chimney-stacks through the ill-fitting window-sash, the narrow, rank bed—all that had been part and parcel of his being. The familiar smell of uncared-for, unclean human lives saturated the house. He shuddered and slammed the door and tore down the stairs. Never again! Never again, so help him God! A short while afterwards he was busy arranging his books in the bright, clean sitting-room of his new lodgings, brought in afternoon tea, which he disposed in decent fashion on a little table. When she had gone, he stood and looked down upon the dainty array. He realised that henceforward this was his home. He picked up from the plate a little three-cornered watercress sandwich, but instead of eating it, he stared at it and the tears rolled down his face. One day, however, towards the end of July, was marked by a black cloud. His day's work being over, he was walking with light step to his lodgings when he saw in the distance, awaiting him, almost on his doorstep, the sinister forms of Billiter and Vandermeer. His first impulse was to turn and flee, but they had already caught sight of him and were advancing to meet him. He went on, old friend,' said Billeter in a beery voice. "'So we tracked you down, eh? We called at the old place and found you'd gone and left no address. Thought you would give us the slip, eh?' He still wore the costume which he had gone racing with quicksters, but after constant use it had begun to look shabby. His linen was of the dingiest, his face had grown more bloated. Vandermeer, pinched, foxy, and rusty, thrust his hard-felt hat to the back of his head, and, hands on hips, looked threateningly at Huckabee. "'I suppose you know you've been playing a low-down game?' "'I know nothing of the sort,' said Huckabee. "'I know nothing of the sort,' said Huckabee. "'How don't you?' said Billiter. "'Look at you and look at us. "'Who's been getting all the fat and who all the lean? "'We have something to say to you, old friend, "'so let's get indoors and have it out between us.' He made a move, accompanied by Vandermeer, towards the front door. But Huckabee checked them, stricken with sudden revolt. His past life should not defile the sanctity of his new home. He would not admit them across his threshold. "'No,' said he. "'Whatever we got to say one another can be said here.' "'All right,' said Vandermeer sulkily. "'There's a quat pub at the corner.' "'I've chucked pubs,' said Huckabee. "'Come off it,' sneered Billeter. "'At any rate you can stand a round of drinks.' "'I've chucked drink, too,' said Huckabee. "'I've sworn off. I'll never touch a drop of liquor as long as I live.' And I advise you fellows to do the same." They burst out, laughing, asked him for tickets for his next temperance lecture, and then began to abuse him after the manner of their kind. "'This is a decent street,' said Huckabee, "'so please don't make a row.' "'We're not making any row,' cried Minniter. "'We only want our share of the money.' "'What money? Didn't I write and tell you the whole thing was off? She couldn't stick it, and neither could I. Quixus hasn't given her one penny piece.' "'We'll see what the lady has to say about that,' growled Billiter. "'You're going to leave that lady alone henceforth and for ever,' said Huckabee, with a new ring of authority in his voice. The others sneered. "'Since when had Huckabee constituted himself squire of dames?' "'Billiter, with profane asseveration, would do exactly what he chose. Wasn't it his scheme? He deserved his share.' Vandermeer gloomily reminded him. "'that he had cast doubts from the first on Huckabee's probity. "'He had put them in the cart in fine fashion. "'They refused to believe in Lena Fontaine's squeamishness. "'Huckabee grew impatient. "'Haven't you each received a letter from Quixters's solicitors? "'Haven't you each signed an agreement not to worry him on forfeiture of your allowance? "'Now, I swear to God that if either of you molest him, you'll be molesting Quixters. "'I'll jolly well see to that.' "'She'll tell me, and I'll tell him, and bang goes the monthly money.' "'Vandermeer's shrewd wits began to work. "'Molest her, and we molest Quixters. "'Oh, is that the little game? "'She's going to marry him, eh?' "'If she does, what the blazes has that got to do with you?' Huckabee cried fiercely. "'You just left the woman alone. "'You've got a damn sight more out of Quixters than you ever expected, "'and you ought to be satisfied.' "'We ought to get more,' said Billeter, considering what we've done for him.' "'You won't said Huckabee. And seeing that they both still regarded Quixtus as a subject for further exploitation, let me tell you something,' said he, a few simple facts that alter the situation completely. Let us take a turn down the street. And as they walked, he told them briefly of Hamsley's death, and the Marseilles visit, and the return of Quixtus, a changed man, with Clementina and the child. The bee, on which they had reckoned for honey, had left Quixtus's bonnet— there was no more bedlamite talk about wickedness. Their occupation as evil counsellors had gone for ever. They had better accept thankfully what they had and disappear. Any action directed against either Quixtus or Lena Fontaine would automatically bring about the demise of the goose with the golden eggs. At last he convinced them of the futility of blackmail, but they parted from him each with a burning sense of wrong. Lena Fontaine and Huckabee had put them in the cart. They were left, they were done, they were stung. They were all things that slang has invented to describe the position of men deceived by those in whom they trusted. "'And she's going to marry him?' said Vladimir. "'How didn't say so?' replied Billeter. "'He didn't contradict it. She's going to marry him, and you bet that son of a pawn-ticket will get his commission.' "'Well, we can't help ourselves,' said Billeter. hmm said Vladimir darkly. Huckabee, conscious of victory, went home, and, taking an old student's text of the Fido from his shelves, abstracted his mind from the sordid happenings of the modern world. It was a day or two after this adventure of Huckabee's that Quixthus informed Clementina of his intention of giving a dinner-party, in honour of Tommy and Etta's engagement. She commended the project. A nice little intimate dinner. "'I'm afraid I'm planning rather a large affair,' said he apologetically, a party of about twenty people.' "'Lord, save us!' cried Clementina. "'Where are you going to dig them up from?' He stretched out his long, thin legs. They were sitting on a bench in the gardens of Russell Square, Sheila having strayed a few yards to investigate the contents of a perambulator in charge of a smiling and friendly nursemaid. "'There are people to whom I owe a return of hospitality,' said he, with a smile, "'and I think a certain amount of formality is due to Admiral Concannon. "'All right,' said Clementina. "'Who are they?' "'There are the Admiral, and yourself, and Tommy and Etta, Lord and Lady Radfield, General and Mrs. Barnes, uh, Sir Edward and Lady Quinn, Dawley, the novelist, you know, Mrs. Fontaine and Lady Louisa Morling.' Clementina stiffened. The blood seemed to flow from her heart, leaving it an intolerable icicle. "'Why Mrs. Fontaine?' "'Why not?' "'Why should Mrs. Fontaine be asked to Etta's party?' "'She's a charming woman,' said Quickstus. "'Just a shallow society hack,' said Clementina, to whom Quixtus had not confided his adventures in the gay world, not through conscious disingenuousness, but assuming that such chronicles would not interest her. "'I'm afraid you do her an injustice,' he said warmly. "'Mrs. Fontaine has very brilliant social gifts. I'm sorry, my dear Clementina, that we disagree on the point, but anyhow she must be invited.' As a matter of fact, it was she who suggested the party. Clementina opened her lips to speak, and then closed them with a snap. Mother Eve sat at her elbow and murmured words of good counsel. "'Not by abuse is an infatuated and quixotic man weaned from seductresses.' She swallowed her anger and fierce jealousy. "'In that case, my dear Ephraim,' she said with mincing civility, "'there is no question about it. Of course she must be invited.' "'Of course,' said he. "'Who else are to come?' He ran through the list. One or two of the prospective guests she knew personally, others by name. As to the personalities of those unknown to her, she made polite inquiries. So unwontedly sugared were her phrases, that Quickster's simple man forgot her outburst. "'You haven't given a dinner-party like this for a long time?' "'Not for many years. Of course I've had men's dinners.' "'chiefly my colleagues in the Anthropological Society. "'But this is a new venture.' "'I wish it every success,' said Clementina mendaciously. "'The only wrong note in it would be myself.' "'Oh, yes, my dear Ephraim,' she said, anticipating his protest. "'I am not made for such a galaxy of fashion. "'I tread upon daintily covered corns. "'I'm a savage. "'All right in my wigwam with those I care for, "'but no use in a drawing-room. "'You must leave me out of it.' Quixtus, shocked and hurt, turned and put out both hands in appeal. "'My dearest friend, how can you say such things? You positively must come.' "'My dearest friend,' she replied, forcing her grin lips into a smile, "'I positively won't.' And that was the end of the matter. She parted from him cordially, and went home with more devils tearing her to pieces with red-hot pincers than had ever been dreamed of in Quickstus's demonology.' End of chapter 21